Good afternoon, good morning, and or good night. This is A.B. Lovelady, the very black male, the fugitive of funk, the contraband candy man, here with the second part of our interview with Tamashi Jackson. Uh, she's a second-year graduate student at the Yale School of Art. Um, in our first uh, part of this interview, we discussed how she used her work as a tool of exploring informal economies and informal labor. And uh, for the second part, part two, we're going to discuss how she uses color theory in her work and how she's studying legislative history of the perception of color in relation to the value of human life. Um, we talk about that, her time at the NAACP in Boston, as well as a number of uh, self-care tips. And um, without further ado, Tamasha Jackson. During your artist talk at PRH, you mentioned uh, how you didn't want any one of the pieces to be um, that you're working on now to be didactic. Mm -hmm. um, I would like to know your opinions on translating a social message um, with subtle symbolism, because during that talk you mentioned color and psychological responses to color. Mm -hmm. So my question is, do you think that subtle aesthetic changes are enough for everyone to be able to interpret the meaning of a piece? Because without wall text or some sort of artist statement, um, I believe a message could easily be just overlooked. Mm -hmm. Yes. No, because I don't assume that everyone, like uh, everyone processes information the same way. So, um, you know, even if I were to write out text, uh, I, can't, I can't assume that, that everyone is going to process it the same way. So what about the, um, the, the subtle differences in different colors and things like that? I took yeah. a look at the, the, the color theory book that was on the ground, and it talks about, you know, if you have a different background, it makes everything look completely different. Right. Um, with yeah. some of your work that you're working on now, where you're using building materials, do you think that you know subtle changes in, in the color are going to really just affect um, somebody's yeah, perception? I think so. Yeah. So color, color definitely, color is powerful that way. So I I, I rely upon it for that mm -hmm. to, um, um, you know, just to 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 establish a um, an inviting place for critical consideration. You know, how the materials are interacting. Well, yeah, you know, I just, you know, I wanna encourage like some critical thinking. I mean, I feel, I feel like, I mean, but I'm not really, but this is also like an intuitive space for me, like making these paintings and making these knitted work, the way that the work is showing up now. I mean, even the drawing on glass, that was, um, that all arose out of, out of intuition also. But, um, but like with these, these new pieces, they don't have figuration in them yet. Like the figure shows up when someone sits in front of them um, and um, participates. I guess they're interactive paintings. And then that's where the video work comes in. But I'm still trying to figure that out. But um, color, um, you know, the, the interaction of color is, um, it's always changing. You know, color, a color is never absolute. A color is only whatever it is based on what it's nearest, you know, the color that it's nearest. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, you know, the actual, the legislative history that I'm exploring now, that I'm researching now, um, 
I feel like that's at the root of it. Um, you know, the perception of color, the value of human life, and the transformation of public space. Okay. Um, you touched on uh, just very quickly earlier about um, how like, your class, uh, how some of your studies has affected your work, uh, specifically with the class that you took at Harvard. I was curious, how has your time at Yale now, currently, been affecting some of the way that you're approaching some of your new art theories? Mm. Um, well, that's where I was reintroduced to Joseph Albers and his text on the interaction of color. And um, please don't hit my runner car. Um, yeah, and light, um, light, color, and light. And you know, co light is made of color. You know, white light is made from every color, right? Or no, red, green, and blue. Right. Make white light. Black is every color. Black is cyan, magenta, and yellow. Black makes the key color. Yeah, black is everything. Black is everything. Okay. Um, but um, yeah, so like the the there's still a lot that I'm relearning and and, and uh, needing to understand. But uh, yeah, CMYK um, is a color system. Is the printmaker's color system. K is the key. K is the key color. Mm -hmm. So cyan, magenta, and yellow together are expected to make you know an umber or you know black is what is is what they produce is what is what they need and then um, but that's subtractive color that's that's color that we can paint with that's you know uh, you know an object based relationship to color light yes. is produced by red green and blue um, so yeah there's been a lot of exciting things that have happened at Yale um, since uh, yeah since uh, since uh, since because I, I went to Yale anticipating that I wanted to focus on the five cases of Brown versus the Board of Education. And um, so yeah, a lot of exciting things have happened with color. So I anticipated that I would go into the school using the law library to explore Brown versus the Board of Education, um, having been prompted by volunteering for the NAACP Boston branch during the summer of 2014, um, at which time I, I got to see as uh, administrators from the Boston Public Schools were pushing um, a program to uh, do away with the last of yellow school bus service for middle school students. And you know, Boston famously had to have federal intervention to desegregate their schools 20 some years after Brown was decided by, unanimously by the Supreme Court, by Earl Warren's court, 1978, 1979, you know, uh, through, through the early 80s, the federal government had to intervene and force them to bust, force them to desegregate their schools. But still contemporarily, the, the same neighborhoods that were woefully under-resourced, if they haven't been gentrified out and are no longer neighborhoods where people of color live, wherever people of color live are still the neighborhoods that are under-resourced and so have neighborhood schools that are languishing, you know, that, you know, paint is peeling all off the walls, but, uh, but you know, it, parents can't just go in and paint. It has to be the union. Or, you know, there are all these there are all these issues, all these reasons why. But it's still the case is still that to get to an air quote quality school, um, children from certain neighborhoods still have to travel very far. And it sounds like something that you you know that your grandparents would tell you like, oh, I used to have to walk seven miles to get to school. That was 
Seg- that was segregation. That's what that was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like that wasn't just a funny story. That was, you know, walking 15 miles in the snow. That's what Linda Brown and her little sister had to do in Topeka, Kansas, to walk past quality schools to get to their, you know, colored children's school, you know, having to walk through a train switchyard and yada, yada, yada. And parents having to choose sometimes between whether or not they're going to work and feed their children or get their children safely to and from school. So in 2014, I, we, we watched as those circumstances were being recreated. They were being urged forward by administrators who um, didn't even have a plan for safety, hadn't even done any research about how often children, uh, how often people, let alone children, are sexually harassed on uh, the on the public transportation system. They were saying that you know these parents are just are going to be happy because their children are going to get a free, a free uh, you know a free a free train card, a free Charlie card. They're just going to be happy about that. So we're just going to push this. Most parents that we talked to on the street, once we found out, we immediately made up posters and started working with the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Economic Justice and other, other, um, other uh, people, other organizations who worked in coalition. Um, uh, and uh, my best friend and I you know, got out and started talking to people on the street. Most, no one knew. No one knew as we were talking to them in June that in September that their children... Uh, you know, and this is New England where we just had that snowmageddon, you know, that crazy, the, all those crazy snowstorms and stuff that completely broke the transportation system. Um, that that's the transportation system that their children would have to rely upon to get to and from school. And if they don't get through middle school properly, then they're not going to get into the good high school, the good testing high schools like Boston Latin. They don't get into the good, if they don't get into the good high schools, chances are very good that they will not go to good college. Um, so, you know, watching all of that happen, remembering being sexually assaulted on a, on a, on a bus, on a public bus in San Francisco when I was a teenager, I'd totally forgotten about that until we were watching these hearings, watching as parents were, you know, literally talking, speaking for their children's lives, you know, uh, bus drivers talking about, you know, their livelihoods and these people just did not care. And, um, you know, insisting that if something, um, uh, if something happens to a girl or a boy on an overcrowded train, like if, if, an, if an adult sexually assaults them, that, you know, somebody will do something about it. You know, a bus driver will do something about it. When that happened to me in San Francisco, nobody did anything. Everyone laughed. What was the reason for them? Uh, and, the uh, reason that they gave was, first it was money. First it was, first it was budgetary, but then it was revealed later that there actually was a, a budget windfall. And that this... This uh, addition to the school budget was attached to the fir- to the new mayor's first budget. You know, Mayor Marty Walsh's first uh, first budget, and you know, Boston's like this old town that had the same mayor for like 500 years, and it was like all a very big deal. Like his first budget was a big deal. It, it really needed to pass, and um, you know, it very narrowly passed. It was, we were only uh, one vote away, one council person away from uh, from stopping it because of that um, because of because of because of that addition to the school budget. So um, it was something. It was just really something to observe. And what I learned was that, um, you know, I was just shocked. Um, And my best friend is an education policy analyst. And, you know, I went home and told her, you know, like, this is insane. This is literally insane. You know, parents of 12-year-old children have already made their decision about where their child is going to go to middle school. And they're being told now, two months out, that, you know, when it's dark at 6 o'clock in the morning, that they're supposed to just send their child off. You know, no matter, you know, like just, and maybe they'll see them again and maybe they won't. <laughs> and, um, and there's money for this. 
And what, what's more important than educating one's citizenry? The, the city's citizenry. What's more important than, than, than their children? Um, and what Nia told me was that uh, what we were watching was not, did not have anything to do with those children personally, but actually had to do with Brown versus the Board of Education and with this multi-generational assault against the gains made by Thurgood Marshall, the NAACP LDF, those five cases that not only desegregated public schools, but desegregated public space. And the implementation of Brown versus the Board of Education made available funding for enriched studies for magnet programs that produced me and produced a lot of the artists that I know that I've gone to school with, arts high schools and arts-focused middle schools, magnet programs and all that. Uh, and, and the busing, I was bused. All of that was a part of the implementation strategy, but there was more that's been chopped apart over the years. Um, so the gutting of the public school system, the destabilizing, the destabilizing of the public school system is happening um, you know, after it's filled with children of color. Um, and so I realized that I don't know anything, that I'm totally affected by this history, but I don't know anything. Um, I didn't know that Brown versus the Board of Education is actually five cases, not one. That you know, it happened in South Carolina, Virginia, uh, DC, Kansas, and I'm forgetting one. I'm forgetting one. Uh, Delaware. Um, so, you know, my goal in going to Yale was like, okay, I'll ground my work in exploring this legislative history and creating a, you know, like a huge body of work about these five cases. And then what I discovered was that um, there's a language that I found a language overlap when um, jumping into Albers and his theory of color interactivity, how, how sure. boundaries vibrate when certain colors meet mm -hmm. and how one color can be made to look like two or two colors can be made to look like one depending on what's in between, depending on what's separating them and what's joining them. Um, uh, oh, and that color is an absolute. That color just, and I mentioned this before, but that color, our idea you know, uh, the human beings desire to, to, to state absolutes about, you know, what red looks like and what the value of red is. You know, I'm hearing, I heard the same thing, I read the same thing in, in, um, in the LDF strategy around explaining why um, color and the perception of color in public space uh, is evolves. not, it, it, it evolves and, it, and it's, and, it, and it's, um, that, that, you know, separate but equal is inherently unequal. Um, but anyways, I'm going too far. Right. Um, uh, I noticed, I read that in an interview with Ball Magazine, you mentioned um, the moment when a light bulb went off in your head and you discovered uh, that there were authors who referred to music as being uh, narratives, unspeakable narratives about black life. Mm -hmm. So, what I have a question is, if you could only, you know, give one book and one album oh, to no. someone, what album and what book would that be? Oh boy, that's really hard. <laughs> um, um, I think I would give, jeez, I'm thinking through my bookshelf. Um, well, you don't have to answer uh, right now, so I'll ask you another question in between, and hopefully it'll give you some time. Igor Stravinsky's The Poetics of Music, I would give that, and the album that I would give, 
the album that I would give mm, would be uh, that's hard because my musical tastes are really messed up I mean it's not messed up but um, <laughs> most people up. most people don't agree with me <laughs> except for my mother um, I would give uh, let me think about the album okay so um, that's a good tough question what are some of your ambitions outside of art because the way that you speak on art it's from a social policy analyst yeah, point of view it's ridiculous so what are some of your ambitions out of art I want to make great paintings that's still art Oh, outside of art. Outside of art. I don't really have any ambitions outside of art. I don't. <laughs> All right. That's um, a fair answer. Fair. Um, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to yourself as a beginning artist? Or just as a beginning person, as a young you? Oh, take better care of my teeth. Take care of your teeth. Listen to your mother when she says take care of your teeth. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, and draw. Draw every day. Don't give the work away. Draw every day. Don't give the work away. Why do you say that? The work is valuable. Because I gave my work to people that didn't take care of the work. And now, um, you know, I've lost work over the years that I've had to, like, I've had to mourn, like, some pieces. Um, hmm. And I don't have children. So I realize that, you know, this, this link, this bond that I feel with some of my work um, is, like, I guess it's, like, you know, I don't want to like uh, belittle what mothers share with children. You know, I have godchildren. Yes, I know. But you, but this is the closest thing that you have to. It's what I produce. That you create. It's yeah. what I produce. You know, and <clears throat> there was a long time, <clears throat> a long time when I questioned my when I questioned my own value for you know various you know reasons. You know, we all have our insecurities and stuff like that. And um, you know, there's some people like you know my mother, some family members, and best friends. I'm happy that I gave them work, but there are some. Um, you know, sometimes giving too much is like born out of like not being clear about the value of what it is you're producing. So I would, um, I would encourage, what I always wanted as a child was to be able to, to have, to collect all, everything that I made and to one day go back. Cause I thought one day it was going to be important. I always, I only ever wanted to be an artist and a great artist at that, to be frank. I feel like I can say that out loud now. And um, so, like, my biggest desire was to one day go back and see how the, my thinking evolved, how my practice evolved, what now I would call a practice, but how, you know, all the art that I created and how one thing led to another. The way you would if you went to a museum. Yeah, yeah, that's what I wanted. And um, uh, leaving my work with the wrong people in the wrong places and not being fully responsible for where, my, where, where those treasures were, um, I'll, I'll never have that. Uh, what, what I will have from having given away so much work is that maybe one day all of that work will come back together. You know, maybe one day the, the people like who still value the work. Yeah, I mean, it happens. Yeah, I guess so. It goes back to the museum. I mean, that happens. I have friends who will, like, pop up from, you know, I'm still friends with people that I've known since elementary school. They're like, I still have what you drew for me. I still have this. I still have that, you know? Yes. So, um, yeah, I, I, would, I would encourage a, a, a younger me or a younger uh, creative person to draw every day to write every day, which I don't do now, unfortunately, but I do, I am coming here every day. I am, I am making work every day. It's just not the same way. But, um, you know, the, those sketchbooks, those early sketchbooks and those early poems, 
um, are all very valuable. And especially the children of this generation, I would encourage them not to get so lost in digital, in digital media um, that, that they don't produce tangible products that are resonant objects. That question actually, well that answer kind of leads in a little bit to this uh, next question, which is, is there anything that you think is toxic or um, yeah, toxic for artists creating cultural media today, whether it's an actual physical toxin or just a mindset mm. or um, behavior? Um, I think self-loathing. I think self-loathing is just really toxic. Because like, there's a lot of interesting things that, that are being made. I mean, totally accidentally, I make, I make digital work. You know, I make video. Like, I'm, I don't know how that ended up happening, but, you know, because I really, I'm, I'm actually, like, really hardcore about, like, drawing and painting yeah. and portraiture, but, you know, like, things evolve, things change. So, you know, it's like, uh, they're all tools, you know, all these things, all these things to make things that we have to make and create, they're, they're tools. Uh, I think the only thing that can be truly, truly toxic um, is thinking. You know, like racism is, is a toxic thinking, is a dangerous toxic th thinking that like literally uh, is killing us. Um, and I think self-hate is similarly, you know, toxic and can kill um, and is very dangerous, especially for young people who aren't seeing reflections of themselves in, uh, in a, who are looking to see reflections of themselves in a larger media landscape that does not actually reflect what, what is possible. You know what I mean? So, you know, as a young artist of color, as a young visual artist of color, um, if I'm leaning only on like one art history teacher that doesn't acknowledge a whole canon of artists who are not white males, then I might not think that I will ever be anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if I'm not driven, I might think that it's not, nothing is possible. Luckily I was, I, I guess I was driven um, by something else. Um, but you know, I would. That's a whole another interview, and I'm gonna meet you some other day. And yeah. Talk about it. But you know, um, I just think that that's the most um, dangerous. I think that's the most dangerous thing. I mean, I feel like it's really dangerous. It was dangerous for. It's dangerous. It was dangerous for me to have uh, so much insecurity and so many questions about my value and about who I was. That you know, that big hole was open, and sucked up things that weren't good for me. You know, and I and I can just I, I see that generally I, for 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 young just for young for young people of color in general for young people in general because all young people experience you know the growing pains of the insecurity that comes along with growing pains. But what am I trying to say? Just trying to say that like, um, you know, everybody has a hole, and it can be filled with um, oh, you know what? A very wise woman, uh, Kristen Moore, used to tell me, um, there's a good line and there's a bad line. And we can feed the good lion, we can feed the bad lion. And the bad lion, you know, is one that, um, that uh, is, uh, could be equated with self-destruction. And we feed the bad lion and then, you know, we get what we get, you know, and that just in the way that we're thinking. Um, so I guess um, trying, to, trying to feed the good lion, I try to feed, I try to feed the good lion and, um, and try to remember that, uh, I used to get really mad at myself for making mistakes uh, whether it was like drawing or writing poetry, I would get really frustrated. And I would have like a room that was messed. I couldn't keep anything clean because I would like start drawing and that it wouldn't come out the way that I thought it should be at, the, at its beginning. And I would crumple up the paper and I just had this 
you know, room that looked insane. Um, and now the way that I relate to my practice is more like, um, I've learned, what I actually like learned at MIT was that uh, a, lot of, a lot of things that I thought were completely like fatal mistakes turned out to be where the poetry was. Have you found that album? Um, I would give, I would give, I would give, uh, Gaucho, Steely Dan's last studio album before they broke up. Or they didn't really break up, before they started doing their own thing, before they came back together. What was that, 1980, I can't remember, it was just, it was my favorite, that, it's an album that was uh, so lyrical that it showed up in my dreams a lot, and, um, my mother used to play it. My mother used to play it on tape when uh, she was a, a night courier in the 80s. It was one of her like early jobs and um, she had to drive all night. She still works at night actually. Um, and if nobody, if there was nobody who could be trusted to care for me in 1980s Los Angeles. She would take you there. She would stuff me in the back of the, so remember those Toyota trucks that was like a, you know, that had a, you yeah. know, the back and, mm -hmm. That little sliver of space behind the yes, so that's where I would sleep, and she would drive, you know, drive around and do her rounds, and um, so that's the music that became embedded in my memory from that time, and then later started showing up in my dreams. So um, I find uh, the work of Fagan and Becker to be uh, soul soothing. And some people can't stand Steely Dan. Some people love you. Either you either love them or you hate them. So, yeah, I would give uh, the the Poetics of Music by Stravinsky that that was assigned to me from a, a, an amazing art historian named Dory Ashton. Um, and I would give Gaucho because it always makes me think of my mother. So hopefully somebody else can get something good from it. Tomasha Jackson, thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs>
and Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd. Okay. I'm going to leave that alone. Thank you. Thank you. That interview was very refreshing to me. Uh, thank you all for listening and uh, sticking through. There was a lot of gems in there for a lot of different types of people. Um, I'm going to put up all the information about the albums and the books that were referenced in this episode up on both Twitter, at ablovelady, and at uh, Facebook. So, so yeah. Um, this episode is sponsored by Charles Williams, one of the people who introduced me to media. And if you'd like to donate, don't. Give it to a homeless person. They probably need it more than me. Take care.